0: Section 18 of An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spotted Dog, Part 2, Continued. But on the following morning we did return. No doubt each individual reader to whom we address ourselves has at some period felt that indescribable load of personal, short-lived care which causes the heart to sink down into the boots. It is not great grief that does it, nor is it excessive fear, but the unpleasant operation comes from the mixture of the two. It is the anticipation of some imperfectly understood evil that does it, some evil out of which there might perhaps be an escape if we could only see the way. In this case we saw no way out of it the doctor was to be with us at one o'clock, and he would come with smiles, expecting to meet his learned colleague. How should we break it to the doctor? We might indeed send to him, putting off the meeting, but the advantage coming from that would be slight, if any. We must see the injured Grecian sooner or later, and we had resolved, much as we feared, that the evil hour should not be postponed. We spent an hour that morning in arranging the fragments. Of the first volume, about a third had been destroyed. Of the second, nearly every page had been either burned or mutilated. Of the third, but little had been injured. Mackenzie's own work had fared better than the doctor's, but there was no comfort in that. After what had passed, I thought it quite improbable that the doctor would make any use of Mackenzie's work so much of the manuscript as could still be placed in continuous pages we laid out upon the table volume by volume that in the middle sinking down from its original goodly bulk almost to the dimensions of a poor sermon and the half-burned bits we left in the box then we sat ourselves down at our accustomed table and pretended to try to work our ears were very sharp and we heard the doctor's step upon our stairs within a minute or two of the appointed time. Our heart went to the very toes of our boots. We shuffled in our chair, rose from it, and sat down again, and were conscious that we were not equal to the occasion. Hitherto we had, after some mild literary form, patronized the doctor, as a man of letters in town will patronize his literary friend from the country. But we now feared him as a truant schoolboy fears his master. And yet it was so necessary that we should wear some air of self-assurance. In a moment he was with us, wearing that bland smile which we knew so well, and which at the present moment almost overpowered us. We had been sure that he would wear that smile, and had especially feared it. "'Ah!' said he, grasping us by the hand. "'I thought I should have been late. I see that our friend is not here yet.' "'Doctor,' we replied, "'a great misfortune has happened.' "'A great misfortune? Mr. Mackenzie is not dead?' "'No, he is not dead.' Perhaps it would have been better that he had died long since. He has destroyed your manuscript. The doctor's face fell and his hands at the same time, and he stood looking at us. I need not tell you, doctor, what my feelings are and how great my remorse. Destroyed it? Then we took him by the hand and led him to the table. He turned first upon the appetizing and comparatively uninjured third volume, and seemed to think that we had hoaxed him. "'This is not destroyed,' he said with a smile. But before I could explain anything, his hands were among the fragments in the box. "'As I am a living man, they have burned it!' he exclaimed. "'I, I, I—' Then he turned from us and walked twice the length of the room backwards and forwards, while we stood still, patiently waiting the explosion of his wrath. "'My friend,' he said, when his walk was over, "'a great man underwent the same sorrow. Newton's manuscript was burned. I will take it home with me, and we will say no more about it.' I never thought very much of the doctor as a divine, but I hold him to have been as good a Christian as I ever met. But that plan of his of saying no more about it could not quite be carried out. I was endeavoring to explain to him, as I thought it necessary to do, the circumstances of the case, and he was protesting his indifference to any such details, when there came a knock at the door, and the boy who waited on us below ushered Mrs. Grimes into the room. As the reader is aware, we had, during the last two months, become very intimate with the landlady of the spotted dog, but we had never hitherto had the pleasure of seeing her outside her own house. "'Oh, mister,' she began, and then she paused, seeing the doctor. We thought it expedient that there should be some introduction. "'Mrs. Grimes,' we said. THIS IS THE GENTLEMAN WHOSE INVALUABLE MANUSCRIPT HAS BEEN DESTROYED BY THAT UNFORTUNATE DRUNKARD. OH, THEN, YOU'RE THE DOCTOR, SIR. THE DOCTOR BOWED AND SMILED. HIS HEART MUST HAVE BEEN VERY HEAVY, BUT HE BOWED POLITELY AND SMILED SWEETLY. OH, DEAR, SHE SAID, I DON'T KNOW HOW TO TELL YOU. TO TELL US WHAT? ASKED THE DOCTOR. WHAT HAS HAPPENED SINCE? WE DEMANDED. The woman stood shaking before us, and then sank into a chair. Then arose to us at the moment some idea that the drunken woman, in her mad rage, had done some great damage to the spotted dog, had set fire to the house, or injured Mr. Grimes personally, or perhaps run amuck amidst the jugs and pitchers, window-glass and gas-lights. Something had been done which would give the Grimeses a pecuniary claim on me or on the doctor, and the woman had been sent hither to make the first protest. Oh, when should I see the last of the results of my imprudence in having attempted to befriend such a one as Julius Mackenzie? If you have anything to tell, you had better tell it, we said gravely. He's been and not destroyed himself. Asked the doctor. Oh, yes, sir, he have indeed, from ear to ear, and is now lying at the spotted dog. And so, after all, that was the end of Julius Mackenzie. We need hardly say that our feelings, which up to that moment had been very hostile to the man, underwent a sudden revulsion. Poor overburdened, struggling, ill-used, abandoned creature. The world had been hard upon him with a severity which almost induced one to make a complaint against omnipotence. The poor wretch had been willing to work, had been industrious in his calling, had had capacity for work, and he had also struggled gallantly against his evil fate, had recognised and endeavoured to perform his duty to his children, and to the miserable woman who had brought him to his ruin and that sin of drunkenness had seemed to us to be in him rather the reflex of her vice than the result of his own vicious tendencies. Still it might be doubtful whether she had not learned the vice from him. They had both in truth been drunkards as long as they had been known in the neighborhood of the spotted dog. But it was stated by all who had known them there that he was never seen to be drunk unless when she had disgraced him by the public exposure of her own abomination. Such as he was, he had now come to his end. This was the upshot of his loud claims for liberty from his youth upward, liberty as against his father and family, liberty as against his college tutor, liberty as against all pastors, masters, and instructors, liberty as against the conventional thraldom of the world. He was now lying a wretched corpse at the spotted dog, with his throat cut from ear to ear, till the coroner's jury should have decided whether or not they would call him a suicide. Mrs. Grimes had come to tell us that the coroner was to be at the spotted dog at four o'clock, and to say that her husband hoped that we would be present. We had seen Mackenzie so lately and had so much to do with the employment of the last days of his life that we could not refuse this request, though it came accompanied by no legal summons. Then Mrs. Grimes again became voluble, and poured out to us her biography of Mackenzie as far as she knew it. He had been married to the woman ten years, and certainly had been a drunkard before he married her. As for her, she'd been well-nigh suckled on gin said mrs grimes though he didn't know it poor fellow whether this was true or not she had certainly taken to drink soon after her marriage and then his life had been passed in alternate fits of despondency and of desperate efforts to improve his own condition and that of his children mrs grimes declared to us that when the fit came on them when the woman had begun and the man had followed they would expend upon drink in two days what would have kept the family for a fortnight. They say as how it was nothing for them to swallow forty shillings' worth of gin in forty-eight hours. The doctor held up his hands in horror. "'And it didn't none of it come our way,' said Mrs. Grimes. "'Indeed, John wouldn't let us serve it for them.' She sat there for half an hour, and during the whole time she was telling us of the man's life, but the reader will already have heard more than enough of it. By what immediate demon the woman had been instigated to burn the husband's work almost immediately on its production within her own home, we never heard. Doubtless there had been some terrible scene in which the man's sufferings must have been carried almost beyond endurance. "'And he had feelings, sir, he had,' said Mrs. Grimes. "'He knew as a woman should be decent, and a man's wife especial. "'I'm sure we pitied him so, John and I, that we could have cried over him. "'John would say a hard word to him at times, "'but he'd have walked round London to do him a good turn. "'John ain't to say educated hisself, but he do respect learning.' When she had told us all, Mrs. Grimes went, and we were left alone with the doctor. He at once consented to accompany us to the spotted dog, and we spent the hour that still remained to us in discussing the fate of the unfortunate man. We doubt whether an allusion was made during the time to the burned manuscript. If so, it was certainly not made by the doctor himself, THE TRAGEDY WHICH HAD OCCURRED IN CONNECTION WITH IT HAD MADE HIM FEEL IT TO BE UNFITTING EVEN TO MENTION HIS OWN LOSS. THAT SUCH A ONE SHOULD HAVE GONE TO HIS ACCOUNT IN SUCH A MANNER, WITHOUT HOPE, WITHOUT BELIEF, AND WITHOUT FEAR, AS BURLEY SAID TO BOTHWELL, AND BOTHWELL BOASTED TO BURLEY, THAT WAS THE THEME OF THE DOCTOR'S DISCOURSE. THE MERCY OF GOD IS INFINITE, HE SAID bowing his head with closed eyes and folded hands. To threaten while the life is in the man is human. To believe in the execution of those threats when the life has passed away is almost beyond the power of humanity. At the hour fixed we were at the spotted dog, and found there a crowd assembled. The coroner was already seated in Mrs. Grimes' little parlor, and the body, as we were told, had been laid out in the tap-room. The inquest was soon over. The fact that he had destroyed himself in the low state of physical suffering and mental despondency, which followed his intoxication, was not doubted. At the very time that he was doing it, his wife was being taken from the lock-up house to the police office in the police van. He was not penniless, for he had sent the children out with money for their breakfasts, giving special caution as to the youngest, a little toddling thing of three years old, and then he had done it. The eldest girl returning to the house had found him lying dead upon the floor. We were called upon for our evidence and went into the tap-room accompanied by the doctor. Alas! The very table which had been dragged upstairs into the landlady's bedroom with the charitable object of assisting Mackenzie in his work? The table at which we had sat with him conning the doctor's pages had now been dragged down again and was used for another purpose. We had little to say as to the matter except that we had known the man to be industrious and capable and that we had, alas, seen him utterly prostrated by drink on the evening before his death. The saddest sight of all on this occasion was the appearance of Mackenzie's wife, whom we had never before seen. She had been brought there by a policeman, but whether she was still in custody we did not know. She had been dressed, either by the decency of the police or by the care of her neighbors, in an old black gown which was a whirl too large and too long for her and on her head there was a black bonnet which nearly enveloped her she was a small woman and as far as we could judge from the glance we got of her face pale and worn and wan she had not such outward marks of a drunkard's career as those which poor mackenzie always carried with him She was taken up to the coroner, and what answers she gave to him were spoken in so low a voice that they did not reach us. The policeman, with whom we spoke, told us that she did not feel it much. She was callous now, and beyond the power of mental suffering. "'She's frightened just this minute, sir, but it isn't more than that,' said the policeman. We gave one glance along the table at the burden which it bore but we saw nothing beyond the outward lines of that which had so lately been the figure of a man. We should have liked to see the countenance once more. The morbid curiosity to see such horrid sights is strong with most of us, but we did not wish to be thought to wish to see it, especially by our friend the doctor, and we abstained from pushing our way to the head of the table. The doctor himself remained quiescent in the corner of the room, the farthest from the spectacle. When the matter was submitted to them, the jury lost not a moment in declaring their verdict. They said that the man had destroyed himself while suffering under temporary insanity, produced by intoxication, and that was the end of Julius Mackenzie, the scholar. On the following day, the doctor returned to the country, taking with him our black box, to the continued use of which, as a sarcophagus, he had been made very welcome. For our share in bringing upon him the great catastrophe of his life, he never uttered to us either by spoken or written word a single reproach. That idea of suffering, as the great philosopher had suffered, seemed to comfort him. "'If Newton bore it, surely I can,' He said to us with his bland smile, when we renewed the expression of our regret. Something passed between us, coming more from us than from him, as to the expediency of finding out some youthful scholar who could go down to the rectory and reconstruct from its ruins the edifice of our friend's learning. The doctor had given us some encouragement, and we had begun to make inquiry when we received the following letter. Blank Rectory, Blank, 18, Blank. Dear Mr. Blank, you were so kind as to say that you would endeavor to find for me an assistant in arranging and reconstructing the fragments of my work on the meters of the Greek dramatists. Your promise has been an additional kindness. Dear, courteous, kind old gentleman, for we knew well that no slightest sting of sarcasm was intended to be conveyed in those words. Your promise has been an additional kindness, but looking upon the matter carefully, and giving to it the best consideration in my power, I have determined to relinquish the design. That which has been destroyed cannot be replaced, and it may well be that it was not worth replacing. I am old now, and never could do again that which perhaps I was never fitted to do with any fair prospect of success. I will never turn again to the ashes of my unborn child, but will console myself with the memory of my grievance, knowing well as I do that consolation from the severity of harsh but just criticism might have been more difficult to find. When I think of the end of my efforts as a scholar, my mind reverts to the terrible and fatal catastrophe of one whose scholarship was infinitely more finished and more ripe than mine. Whenever it may suit you to come into this part of the country, pray remember that it will give very great pleasure to myself and to my daughter to welcome you at our parsonage. Believe me to be, my dear Mr. yours very sincerely, Blank we never have found the time to accept the doctor's invitation, and our eyes have never again rested on the black box containing the ashes of the unborn child to which the doctor will never turn again. We can picture him to ourselves standing full of thought with his hand upon the lid, but never venturing to turn the lock. Indeed, we do not doubt but that the key of the box is put away among other secret treasures a lock of his wife's hair, perhaps, and the little shoe of the boy who did not live long enough to stand at his father's knee. For a tender, soft-hearted man was the doctor, and one who fed much on the memories of the past. We often called upon Mr. and Mrs. Grimes at the spotted dog, and would sit there talking of Mackenzie and his family. Mackenzie's widow soon vanished out of the neighborhood and no one there knew what was the fate of her or of her children. And then also Mr. Grimes went and took his wife with him. But they could not be said to vanish. Scratching his head one day, he told me with a dolorous voice that he had made his fortune. "'We've got as snug a little place as ever you see, just two miles out of Colchester,' said Mrs. Grimes triumphantly with thirty acres of land just to amuse john and as for the spotted dog i'm sick of it another year it wear me to a dry bone we looked at her and saw no tendency that way and we looked at john and thought that he was not triumphant who followed mr and mrs grimes at the spotted dog we have never visited liquor pond street to see End of The Spotted Dog End of Section 18 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina